Jeff Wilson, um, and welcome to the WAM Alternate Assets um, Interim Results Webinar. Now, this is your company. Now, I'm a director of WAM Alternate Assets, um, and I'm also uh, chair of the Investment Committee. Um, I'm joined here today with Dania Zinarova. You know, Dania is the portfolio manager responsible for managing you know, that, the pool of capital at, um, at WMA, I'll call it, you know, to make you know, for short. Um, and also with the you know, sort of the revitalization of this company before, you know, since Wilson Asset Management has been managing it and Dania's been um, responsible for it, you know, we're really looking at yeah, you know, looking at medium long-term investment opportunities that that are you know we think are, are exceptional opportunities, and what we're doing or what Dania is doing um, with her team is finding partners you know, that really have you know, a high quality, um, and we can invest in their funds and broadly partner with them. And today, uh, you know, it's it's very exciting. We've got uh, Roger Lloyd. Roger is one of the you know, one of the founders of Palisade Investment Partners. You know, Roger was uh, at Macquarie and you know, BT before that for over a decade. Uh, very successful. Um, Palisade is is probably one of the most successful infrastructure plays in the Australian market. And just recently, um, you know, just last week, uh, and this is I, I was nearly jealous when I was I was you know, I was talking to Roger beforehand and I was reading this. Now, he was on the list on the Australian Green Power Players list. Um, you know, you know, that's, that's something I'll aspire to, to get on that one day. Uh, but Roger, Roger was, and that was really for the impact that Palisades have uh, been making with the billion-dollar you know, renew, renewable energy fund. So you know, congratulations, Roger, um, you know, for that. And, and, and Roger is, you know, as I mentioned, a, a valued partner of ours. I'll just quickly talk about the... And you'll hear from Roger and Dania in detail a little bit later. I'll quickly just talk about the um, the result um, because this is you know the, the six monthly result seminar or webinar. Um, and let let me just you know focus on some of the highlights. The you would be aware that the um, the interim dividend was announced. You know, the plan, the board's plan, and this was sort of you know, discussed in detail over the last you know, twelve months is to be able to be in a position really to provide shareholders with a growing stream of fully frank dividends and to um, equalise the dividends between the interim and the full year. And that's why you'll see that the um, the interim dividend that was announced with the result you know, was a two cents fully frank dividend. Um, so you'd assume there's going to be a two cent you know, final dividend. You know, so that gives a yield of about 3.7% fully frank and grossed up a little over 5%. Uh, the investment portfolio, and again, you've got to remember this is alternate assets. You know, so it's not the equity market. It really gives you a uh, a, a much smoother ride in, in um, as an investor. But the portfolio was up, you know, which again was an extremely solid result. Um, it was up seventeen point six percent in the calendar year, um, and that's while <laughs> holding quite high cash levels of, you know, so the risk you're taking to get this reward. Um, are really skewed in your favour because the cash levels were just under uh, 25%. Um, and the last six-month period, the portfolio increased uh, you know, a, a little under 8% or 7.6%, and still the cash level was a little bit, a uh, little over that you know, 24 cent, uh, sorry, 24% mark. One of the pleasing things is, you know, since Dania's been managing this portfolio, is the profit reserve has grown from... You know, very little, you know, um, you know, virtually nothing to a solid, you know, fourteen point six cents. So, the ability to keep, you know, providing you a growing stream of fully frank dividends is well and truly there, um, which, which you know, really does you know, make us, you know, very excited. Uh, also, you know, since Wilson Asset Management has been, you know, the manager of this portfolio, you know, the the entity was trading. I think at about a 30, 32 or 33% discount to the value of its assets. Um, and that's that's reduced significantly. And you know, over the last, well, 12 months, um, about probably over the last 18 months, you know, shareholder numbers increased 30% plus. And that discount has narrowed. But still, 
you know, it's still trading today at a 12% discount. You know, what will happen over time, and it just it takes a bit of time, you know, the shareholding base will tighten up um, and you'll see that the, you know, the, the discount uh, disappear. They'll trade at NTA, um, if not a premium. Uh, and, and we've experienced that numerous times at Wilson Asset Management. Probably the one that took us the longest to get it to trade the NTA, you know, strangely enough, is actually now trading at the highest premium. Now, that's WAM, um, WAM Research. It took us seven years to get that to trade at NTA. And now it's trading, I think yesterday when I looked, it was a 48% premium you know, to NTA, which is, which is crazy. The great thing about um, you know, WMA, a growing stream of fully frank dividends uh, in a company that should give you significant diversification to the equity market, um, and you're all and you're buying a dollar of assets for 88 cents. Um, so, the in terms of you know, now, I'd like to pass over to Dania. Do you just want to talk a little bit about um, you know? The portfolio and um, yeah, and and, and you know, how that's performed over the last six months, and any any other little you know, bits and pieces you'd like to throw in, that'll be great. Thank you, Jeff. Good afternoon, everyone. We we had very uh, positive results within the portfolio, and I would say this was driven both by successful exits of some of the investments. As we announced in December NTA report, we exited Quality Food Services, which was a private equity investment managed by one of our investment partners, Fortitude. Um, they've been working really hard on implementing the growth strategy for this business. In other words, through mergers and acquisitions, growing the footprint of the business and growing the attractiveness for strategic buyers of this business. And the exit was above carrying value of the investment. Um, actually, the business was bought by another larger private equity player in Australia, um, one, one of the um, largest ones. Um, we also exited two other assets. Uh, one of them was um, an asset um, linked to renewable energy solar fund uh, that was managed by Argyle. Good um, exit from my perspective, in particular seeing the demand from global investors for renewable energy assets in Australia. And this trend, I expect, will continue. I'm sure Roger will talk more about the dynamic within infrastructure market. And finally, a very interesting asset that we had in the portfolio um, in based in New York, Manhattan, commercial real estate asset, uh, the asset undergone redevelopment strategy. And um, it was actually announced upon exit that it's one of the highest quality assets in terms of the sustainability rating, in terms of the quality and flexibility of the office space. So we were very proud to get this coverage. The asset was managed by Cove Property Group in New York. Um, again, the exit was above carrying value. As we previously discussed and communicated to the shareholders, the portfolio consists of unlisted inherited assets, and the vintage year for those assets ranges between 2016 and 2017, which means that from last year to this year, next year, we will experience uh, and we'll see more exits within the portfolio. Now, I get a lot of comfort um, looking at the current valuations of the assets within the portfolio and seeing the demand for this type of assets in the Australian market. Uh, I get a lot of comfort that we'll see more successful exits over the, over the next 12 to 24 months. But at the same time, um, the investment performance was also driven by yield. We do have several assets within the portfolio that are yielding, paying regular distributions, and that's very important for our portfolio structure. Uh, we will have more yielding investments in the portfolio, and I will continue implementing the strategy where the return will be driven by a combination of fairly stable, predictable income streams and capital appreciation over time. I would add that portfolio is shifting gradually. So you may look at the chart and see a very similar 
allocation across asset classes, I can assure you this will be changing over the course of the next year or two. It does take time to deploy capital in alternative asset classes. Um, usually when we commit to a new strategy, it does take 12 to 24 months to deploy the capital in those investments. Um, the uh, point that I wanted to mention as well, while the portfolio is currently a mix of co-investments and some pooled funds investments, I will be adding investments via different implementation routes. One of them, as an example, separate mandate. So you will see going forward a bit more variety in terms of the implementation route. And this is done mainly to ensure we have flexible cash flow management opportunities. Um, we can manage our cost base more effectively and we can exercise veto right where possible in order to tailor the portfolio in line with our strategy. Finally, I'd just add um, that WMA's goal is to democratize alternative investing. Um, it is the only LIC listed on ASX that provides this diversified exposure to alternative assets, which are often just not accessible by the broader retail investor market. So very excited to be on this uh, journey and very excited about bringing new investment opportunities to our shareholders. Thanks, Danya. And I've got a, another question for you. But before I go there, I love that phrase, the democratising of alternate asset investing. It reminds me back in um, yeah, when the first listed investment company was set up in London in 1868, it was uh, by Foreign and Colonial. And there was a great quote in that prospectus. It was really, it was talking about allowing people of little means to you know, have access to what the, <laughs> effectively the people with a lot of money have access to. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's, yeah, you know, we've seen, um, you know, this, this entity in its previous, um, you know, form, uh, has traded at quite a you know, good premium to NTA and um, we're sure once we've sort of cleaned up the register and the people that are there sort of just uh, that don't know exactly why they're, they're, they've moved on, then I'm sure um, yeah, you'll end up having to pay a premium to get the, the benefit <laughs> of democratisation of alternate assets. Um, but just in terms of, Dana, this, this year going forward, you know, a lot of uncertainty out there in the world you know, with what's happening in Eastern Europe, um, obviously, you know, domestically in Australia, the, the flooding. What's, what's, what are you looking at and you know, what's, what's your focus? Thank you, Jeff. Um, you know, for, from the total portfolio construction point of view, so when we think about an investment portfolio that includes equity, fixed income, alternative assets, the expectation is always that alternative assets provides not only great alpha potential, i.e. growth appreciation over time, but it also serves as a very good downside protection. So, you know, before answering your question on what's ahead, what are the opportunities, I would just want to emphasize that um, alternative assets, they do have low, in some cases, negative correlation to other traditional asset classes. Um, they have low volatility due to very different valuation cycles. And we also need to remember alternative <laughs> assets, their value is driven by tangible assets or by tangible businesses. So there is less influence on over daily market noise on the value of those assets. In terms of what's, what's ahead and what I'm looking at for the next 12 to 24 months, um, I'm looking at growing our allocation to private equity, and I really look broader rather than at a particular strategy. Um, I'm looking at a broader combination of strategies like mid-market buyout, private equity growth, and one new one, which I believe will play out really well in the current market environment, is a strategy that focuses on turnaround and transformation because we do see that COVID-19, while did not impact Australian economy to the same extent as in the US and Europe and other countries, 
it still had a negative impact on certain industries like travel, leisure, hospitality. And usually the type of strategies focusing on turnaround and transformation, they are implemented during those periods most successfully. Um, in terms of other asset classes within the alternative space, asset classes like infrastructure of great interest, and I won't steal Roger's remarks, but I always focus on infrastructure during those um, market environments because infrastructure can be a natural hedge, inflation hedge, and infrastructure provides much more stable yield to investors um, than any other asset class because of the nature of underlying contractual revenues. So it's a very safe asset class, uh, an asset class that also gives um, a lot of diversification to investors. Um, I will also continue looking at opportunities within real estate, potentially private debt, um, real estate debt. The opportunity set is great currently in Australia, so I'm um, very positive about those new investments. Look, thank you very much, Danya. And um, look, why don't we turn to Roger now? And, and you know, Roger, congratulations on you know, what you've done at Palisade in terms of setting it up and, and leading it as, as CEO. Um, you know, you've done a, a fantastic job and, and you know, we're very excited to have you as you know, to be investing alongside you. Do, do you just want to give us a little bit of an uh, update on, well, what we're actually invested in, uh, as in us, you know, as we're all shareholders in uh, WMA, uh, and also just a little bit about Palisade that people mightn't be aware of. Um, that'd be great, Roger. Great, thanks. Uh, thanks, Jeff, and, and uh, thank you for those those comments earlier. It, uh, it is a privilege to be on that uh, on the Green Power Players list, um, but we're a, a lot wider business than than just being green, I must say. Um, and yes, Dania did steal our thunder a little bit, but I'll, I'll give uh, I'll give a brief on Palisade um, because we're not a household name by any stretch of the imagination, and, and don't intend on on being so. Um, we're a, a specialist infrastructure manager, um, even even more specialist than that. We've we have deliberately focused on on what we call the mid market um, in in the infrastructure market. Simply what that means is we're not targeting the, the big privatised assets that we've seen um, seen sold by state governments and, and then you know, secondary sales. We target um, a layer of assets below that. Similar assets, similar characteristics, but not um, generally uh, subject to the same sort of pressures in terms of pricing and, and auction processes to buy them. Um, so we, we, we like the mid-market. It's, uh, it's where we've deliberately been for... Um, you know, since since our inception 14 years ago, and it's worked very well for us. Um, so we're we're managing around about three and a half billion dollars in in equity value in in infrastructure in that mid market, um, and we really have targeted those sectors that we see as attractive and look to to expand uh, opportunistically, oftentimes, but expand by by sectors that we see attractive. Um, so we're now, you know, sitting on a portfolio of, of close to 25 assets, you know, across the full spectrum um, of, of infrastructure, um, and it's um, it's a portfolio now that really has us managing, in in the main, majority interests, um, uh, majority stakes in in the assets that we that we invest in, and the benefit to that is we can actually have a lot more influence at, at management level. And if you just think about it, if you're, if you're part of a large consortium bidding for Osgrid or Sydney Ports, um, generally financial players, there might be five or six of you in a consortium, you buy an asset, you sit on the board, uh, your influence is generally fairly limited. Um, whereas we can um, buy these smaller assets, and to give you an example, we've got Sunshine Coast Airport in, in our portfolio, we manage 100% of that asset. Um, you can imagine the, the the degree of influence is quite a lot higher than um, than uh, than we would have if we're sitting on, say, Sydney Airport's board. Um, so, so it, it is our targeted and it's deliberately been, and, and we've been singularly focused on on mid market infrastructure in in Australia. Um, 
so the portfolio we, we manage we manage money both through funds but also through separately managed accounts that uh, Dani referred to earlier. Um, and it's about 50-50 split, and it enables us to pool a club of Palisade money to actually pursue um, large stakes in, in these assets. So it's worked well. Um, the fund that WMA comes into is our diversified infrastructure fund. Um, so I'll refer to PIDF from here on in, um, because it's way too much to say all those uh, all those words at once and get them all right. Um, but PIDF has got a very diversified portfolio um, of, of assets, invests in all bar one of the assets in our total portfolio. So it's, it, it is probably one of the more diversified assets in the, in the, in the market, more diversified portfolios in the market in infrastructure. And to give you a, a sort of idea as to what the diversification means, yes, 25 assets seem to, seem to be 27 assets. Um, it's across the spectrum. We've got um, airport assets, We've got um, renewable assets. We've got what are called public-private partnerships, social infrastructure assets, which are generally very low-risk government revenue stream infrastructure assets, um, hospitals and the like. Um, uh, through to ports, we've got uh, most, our most recent acquisition was Port of Geelong. Um, we've also got the Port of Portland, Victoria. Um, fairly rare to get a hold of a port, so we're pleased to now have a couple of those. But you notice there we've got clusters within sectors we like. And and that's, I think, has been one of the things that I've found most satisfying over the last 14 years, actually building a portfolio by platform, if you like. Um, so if we're going to get into airports, let's make sure that we can get a few airports and use our sector knowledge, use our expertise to actually ma maximise those investments. So having four airports now in the portfolio is, is fantastic. You know, having six renewable assets with 1.1 gigawatts of, of power and degeneration, fantastic. We can bring all the synergies, we can bring the economies, we can bring all the intellectual capital that we've built up to play um, in those sectors. Um, so as I say, we're sitting on, um, on on those 25, seem to be 27 assets. Importantly, through through COVID, I think we, we've also seen that um, a large part of our portfolio, around about 60% of our portfolio are contracted. Um, contracted revenue streams. And that really held us in good stead um, against some of our peers who are more heavily weighted towards GDP linked, so economic linked assets such as airports, ports, etc. Um, and, and that meant that we, you know, through this didn't have a, a huge degree of volatility. Um, and and that, that has been the case. Over over 10 years we've we've generated 12.5% per annum um, returns. And I love the comment that you want uh, that you want yield, Dania and Jeff, because we're producing that. We, we're producing over seven percent, and have done uh, have done for quite some time. Bit of a dip of, of late. Uh, airports haven't helped uh, with with no planes flying, but uh, you know we, that's our target. We're we're a high yielding high yielding fund. I think importantly another thing which you also mentioned, Dania, is correlation with inflation. So we're we're not correlated with with the the public markets, the equity markets. We do have a a very high correlation to inflation of around about 0.8. So that's where we want to be. We want to be highly correlated and, and we're achieving that. So real focus on protection of real real returns. Um, I'll leave it there, but obviously yeah, open that, to... Open that's to great. Thanks, Jeff. But, no, thanks, Roger. That's uh, very exciting. And and yeah, what would you say of the assets that that um, where WMA is invested in? And um, yeah, what would be the most exciting one would you say of in there or like uh, to me to me they're all to me they're all fascinating you know when you when you talked about owning Geelong ports I remember when I went to Werribee Park down there the Churnsides had it and they, they had the Churnside army which we had Geelong ports the second deepest port in Australia or something like that and, and that's where all the big ships in the 1800s used to come in and so the Churnside army would take them from Geelong ports up to Melbourne so the yeah, so, uh, but fascinating, you know, fascinating group of assets. And to me, what a, such a smart strategy in terms of rather than being you know, one of you know, a number of players, j just to have significant influence on the assets you're buying, which is, you know, as you're saying, with the Sunshine Coast Airport, very smart. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. I, I, Jeff, I'm, I'm glad somebody shares our passion and excitement for, for our assets, um, you know, infra infrastructure, uh, is supposed to be a boring asset class, right? Um, 
it's far from it. We got we. It's fair to say we 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 do have some very boring assets, in there. and and uh, I'd put our PPP uh, social infrastructure assets in that class. They sit there. We open the doors. The government pays us. It's it's relatively benign asset. But then when you move up the when you move up the let's call it the risk curve towards um, you know airport assets, port assets. Um, you know those. You know they have a lot more moving parts. Uh, they're a lot more dynamic, and we've got large internalized um, management teams within those. So you've got a you've got a very a workforce. So you, you're always trying to engage and maximise the output from um, to to make sure that your assets performing as best best they can. I, I think um, of late, and this is a sign of the times. Our airport assets have probably been the most exciting but uh it's it's been fairly hair raising um you know we we've as we all have over the last few years been through this this horrible cycle of lock lockdown and um and and that's impacted those airports quite quite heavily but it's taught us a lot too it's taught us a lot about about the cost of the airports what needs what we need to um to have as fixed costs where where we can really work on our, our variable costs within within airports um, to protect ourselves. Also, the need to diversify. I mean, you'll hear me talk diversify a, a lot. Um, I, I'm, I'm very keen on diversification in everything we do. But one thing we've found, you know, our, if we look at the various airports we've got, once again, regional airports, right, not, not capital city, we are at Darwin, Alice Springs, Sunshine Coast and Coffs Harbour in our portfolio. Darwin is a very mature airport right, privatisation back in '99. Um, Sunshine Coast we only bought four years ago, um, and it, it isn't. It's not mature in that it's it's ninety percent of its revenue stream comes from people landing. Um, Darwin held up quite well during COVID because we had a lot more revenue streams there. We've got um, we've got quite a big bank of property that's been developed um, from which we could still receive revenues, even though we we didn't have uh, planes landing and passengers. Um, whereas Sunshine Coast doesn't have that, uh, so that's there's a bit of excitement there. Um, we're we're going to be heading out to we're heading you know down the development route. We've got to be property bank as most airports do that we're going to develop. Um, sorry, I can talk about this forever. Um, that's that's my that's, that's my passion and excitement. No, that's that's brilliant and a great great area to have property assets too and you know and up in queensland and and roger one thing i did like um was the correlation to inflation because uh, as an equity market investor you now one of the things that yeah uh, as an equity market investor i'm worried about is inflation which higher interest rates and then you know the great way is you know, invest you know with wma invested with you guys then they're going to get the benefit of any inflation and, and such a high correlation, nearly 80%, which is mm-hmm. you know, which is exceptional. Look, thank you very much for that, Roger, and for letting us be involved with you. Um, why don't I, I'll go, I'll pass over to our Senior Corporate Affairs Advisor, Camilla Cox now, and Camilla, she'll, she's, she'll work the Q&A. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Roger and Dania. Dania, the first question we have today is for you. It's a two-part question. It's from Priya. She's asked, can you please explain how you value the NTAs of the unlisted investments in the portfolio and also discuss the valuation process of the investments? Thank you. Thank you, Priya, for this question. Very um, that does come up very often. Um, so let's let's split it into two parts. One part is how are the underlying assets valued? And how do we then derive from those valuations the NTA and how frequently is it all done? So depending on the asset class, we are looking within our portfolio at venture capital, private equity, real assets that includes water rights and agriculture, real estate, um, infrastructure. So within private equity, there are usually um, two main valuation approaches. Sometimes independent valuers are using third one, but it's principally the um, multiple of earnings, a discounted cash flow, or market value, or market comparables. So what is um, happening with the underlying assets? Each asset within our portfolio is valued at least on the annual basis, by an independent external value. And we are talking here about 
you know, some high-profile firms like PwC, Deloitte, KPMG, they assess the valuation usually using two or three various uh, valuation approaches, depending on the nature of the company, depending on the nature of the assets, um, and then produce a very detailed um, independent valuation assessment report, which is then shared with our investment partners and with our team. Um, the task of adopting the value determined by the independent valuer uh, rests then with our investment partner, but they will have to um, explain why they think this is the most appropriate value. And it's usually a range, what we call a lower base and then the higher base. So we went through this process now three times, assessing the valuations. We do it on the semi-annual basis. Um, and I can see within the portfolio, there is definitely more skewiness to adopting valuations, which are at the lower base. Uh, basically, assets within the portfolio are conservatively valued. Now, this forms part of the process where we monitor those valuations on a monthly basis. And I must tell you that the values within alternative asset classes and, and listed in particular like private equity, venture capital, real estate, they don't change month to month. So there needs to be a business event or M&A activity or capital raising activity in order for the valuation to change. And there always needs to be a reason why there is an uplift or decrease in the valuation. Um, I, as a portfolio manager, I have those updates on a monthly basis where I monitor where the portfolio is going, where the assets valuations are moving, uh, looking at the financials and also the market comparables. Our investment partners then provide us with uh, unit prices every month, which we then include in the calculation of our monthly NTAs. What is done at the higher level when we look at all the valuations of the underlying assets and take into account independent valuations or independently assessed valuations, we do it every six months, so interim um, and then end of financial year. And we also run the analysis, what we call, what are the market comparables? So if these are multiple of earnings, let's look at potential market comparables of similar businesses or similar assets, and we can assess how fair does reflect the market. Uh, we then prepare very detailed valuation assessments, which are then uh, shared with our auditors for their more detailed um, review. So that's in a nutshell how the valuation works. Thanks, Tanya. The next question is for you, Jeff, and it's from John. He's asked, how many years dividend coverage does WMA have? Yes, the uh, I mentioned earlier in the introduction there's in the profit reserve, there's about 14.6, well, there is 14.6 cents. Uh, and, you know, we announced the two cent interim dividend. So if we keep it at four cents for the next three years, then, you know, there's, well, three and a half years or 3.6 years of cover. You know, as a director and as a sizable shareholder in WMA, and I'm sure, you know, you, you as a shareholder in WMA would like the the performance to be better than that on the dividend front and like to me in terms of with the profit reserve we've already got there's no reason why the dividend can't go four cents five cents six cents uh and you know again the profit reserve um can be topped up on a monthly basis uh, and effectively it resets on the first of july each year so you know the opportunity over that three years um i'm sure we'd the profit reserve would increase again uh, and, you know, the, the dividend can continue to grow. So, I mean, what we try to deliver to shareholders is a growing stream of fully frank dividends and, to me, something like that four, five, six over the next few years, you know, should do well and that'll help the share price move to NTA if not a premium. That would be my thoughts. Great. Thanks, Jeff. 
Dania, back to you. This is also from John. And he said, with the increased volatility in equity markets, can we expect a strong performance over the next 12 months with the real asset exposure of the fund? Um, look, I, I am biased, of course. <laughs> I do expect strong performance. Um, but as I said, the volatility within alternative asset classes, in particular when you talk about unlisted, it's much lower than um, in the equity market. So the key here is really to find the long-term megatrends, megatrends with strong tailwinds that would be sustainable over the next five to 10 years. Um, and that gives us comfort that from the time we buy the assets until the time we exit, um, their value increases on the back of the macroeconomic factors uh, and also on the back of, you know, various strategies implemented on those assets. Um, I do think it's not necessarily a comparison between the returns when we think about alternatives versus equity. It is an assessment of what is the role of alternative assets in my investment portfolio. It's a diversification it's an asset class that produces fairly stable yield. It's an asset class that has low volatility, potential inflation hedge, and it can get access or, to various megatrends that often are just not available through equity markets. Thank you, Dania. And we'll stay with you. We've got a question from Hayden. He says, how quickly is cash anticipated to be deployed? And what allocation can we anticipate moving forward? Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so within uh, within the cash um, level that we have now, what we see on the chart is the total amount of cash. It's important to look um, deeper into this. So about two thirds of this cash has been already committed to new investments. And, um, you know, we base um, the results and this discussion on uh, December 2021 figures, but we're already in March. So, um, you know, unofficially, I can tell you there are already new commitments being made. So there is even more higher level of cash that is being committed. What happens once we are committed, this cash is then gradually deployed over time. As an example, uh, we expect Palisade, Roger and his team to deploy our commitment in full amount in June. We expect deployment from other commitments to happen over the course of the next 12 months. So this cash level will be increasing. On the other hand, because we are exiting maturing investments, there will be further inflow into the cash level. So I would say over the next 12 to 24 months, we will see variable levels of cash depending on where the portfolio is in terms of the new commitments and exits. But that should stabilize um, over the course, over the next like one to two years. Great. Thanks, Tanya. Roger, we'll go to you now. This question is from Amy. You've touched on this a little bit, but what are some of the important themes that guide Palisades um, investments? Um. I, I think the question might be sort of sending me towards uh, you know, what, what, what are the themes that, that we like at the moment, what are the sectors that we like, but I think I think it's probably more important to look at what is our, you know, what's our investment philosophy and what's our objective, because um, the, the themes will continue to change, and I'll talk about things we're interested in in a second, but ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to, um, from an open-ended fund, which we're continuing to, to deploy capital, on behalf of the investors. Ultimately, what we're trying to achieve is to generate long-term sustainable cash flow from the assets we're invested into. Um, with an overlay that we, we're protecting capital and we'll get all the other benefits, correlation uh, with inflation, et cetera. That, that's a theme that's a constant, that never changes. That's what we're trying to do. What we're able to be is we're able to be flexible and move towards sectors that we actually um, like it, 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 there will come times when we, when we move away from a particular sector because we don't believe the risk reward is there. Um, and to give you an example of that, 
you know, we started our social infrastructure fund back in 2011. Um, we haven't invested anything in PPPs the last five years. Um, they became too risky. They, they, they moved into very high risk, massive construction projects like Sydney Metro, which we actually did invest in. We've now um, divested that uh, at, a, at a good uh, return. Um, but massively risky projects and, and not something we're interested in, we could move away from that. Being flexible is really important um, for us. Um, I think I've talked, I talked about it before, which is around a platform approach. I think that's really important. So if we've got our you know, current airports platform, we've got our renewables platform, we've got, um, um, we've got our PPPs, et cetera, that's going to drive our investment activity going forward. Um, and and, and that's, that's, I think, where, we're getting, we, where we are now getting the benefit of, of what we um, set out to do and have, have actually achieved. We've got a lot more, um, we've got a lot more sticky, portfolio, a lot more mature portfolio than we had. We currently have no construction across the entire portfolio, which is, I think, the first time in our, in our history. Um, but what that is meaning is that we've got a very strong portfolio that's going to keep on generating these long-term sustainable cash flows, which, back to point one, that's what, what we're achieving. Um, that may not answer the question entirely uh, of, of of the um, the asker, but I, you know the, the themes are, are are ever changing. We've got to be flexible and dynamic enough to chase chase those that work. That's great. Thanks, Roger. Danny, we'll go back to you. This one is from Bill, and he's asked, "What is your current exposure to venture capital?" Um, the current exposure to venture capital is at about. Um, 10% currently within the portfolio. Um, we do include uh, venture capital within what we call private equity or growth um, investments. The future of venture capital within the portfolio is less, um, how shall I word it? <laughs> is less of an importance for us because where I see most of the opportunities for WMA, they rest mainly within private equity space. As I mentioned before, private equity growth, mid-market buyout, turnaround transformation. Venture capital is an asset class where we do see highest dispersion between losers and winners. My focus is on reducing this dispersion between the returns within the portfolio. Um, so I would be spending less time on venture capital going forward. Thanks, Tanya. Next question is from Stan for you, and he's asked, do you seek out the opportunities or do they usually come to you? Both, both. Um, it's, 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 it's a combination of inbound, outbound inquiries, and I come with you know, many years of experience working in this market and in the global market. So it's about reconnecting with my network, um, reaching out to the people that I already know, like as an example with Roger, we've worked before, I think since 2013. Um, and it's interesting that many asset managers nowadays, a global, both global and Australian, they come often to us and they're willing to work with us. They're willing to tailor their services um, because everyone is very interested in working with retail wholesale investor base in Australia. So it's been a very positive um, experience um, over the last few years. Thanks, Tanya. It's quite a few for you coming through, so we'll stay with you. This one is from Kathy, and she said, how do you choose your investment partners? Um, a secret sauce. <laughs> uh, well, in all seriousness, it, it's quite consistent um, across asset classes within the portfolio. So the focus is on six, what I call six success factors. One is what is the business like, how sustainable is business over the long term, is the business profitable? How is the business operating? How is the business structured in terms of the organizational design? Anything that would give me a deeper insight and understanding if I invest with this investment partner for the next 10 years, is the business going to be there? 
And there will be questions like how the equity ownership split within the team. Uh, the more team members are included in the equity ownership, the better alignment is achieved, etc. The second one is around the team, investment professionals, briefly looking at the level of resources, meeting with the people, understanding their skill set, experience, reference checks, uh, what are the roles, how do they split within the team, as an example, with a strategy like turnaround and transformation, it's a very intense um, strategy. So the resources need to match how many portfolio companies are there within the portfolio. So I need to ask questions. How many people worked on that deal and how many people are you going to allocate to a different deal to assess this level? Um, then I would say it's a group of factors around investment strategy and portfolio management. So factor three and factor four, um, assessing whether it's the right strategy for the current market environment. Uh, what are the investment processes? Do they follow the investment process level of the governance? On the portfolio management, a lot of time is spent on the track record analysis. Um, lessons learned, which is very important for unlisted investments, how um, an investment partner can ad ad adopt new practices. And finally, um, two very important factors, alignment and investment terms. So alignment, in other words, there, there is a term within private equity carried interest. Carried interest is seen as a long-term incentive for investment professionals. So I can actually give like a private, a, a practical example. When we took over the management of WMA, we did renegotiate the structure of the fees with our investment partners to ensure there is a very strong alignment. What, what it means, it means that the performance fee needs to be based on exit rather than on cost. And there has to be very strong alignment and focus on exiting those assets at the right value at the right time and finding the right partners. So these terms uh, are very important to understand and you know, often provide feedback and work together where possible with the investment partner on improving those terms. And on the investment terms, um, it's about what is the fee structure, is there a key man clause provision, and it's it's a mix of the investment terms and some legal terms that I look at. But um, very, very interesting process usually does take about, I would say, like 100 hours if it's a new strategy, new investment partner. And of course, now that the, the borders are open, um, we can also start doing the property and asset tours to see the businesses, meet the teams, etc. Secret sauce. Thanks, Dania. That's great. <laughs> Roger, over to you now. This question is from Ian. He says, does Palisade consider overseas infrastructure or is the fund its investments contained just within Australia? Okay. <laughs> so, Peter, for diversified infrastructure fund, um, is predominantly Australia, New Zealand, and we count New Zealand as part of Australia, um, rightly or wrongly. Um, so, so it is predominant, and and to date we have very much focused on 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 the Australian um, on the Australian market. We made an investment a couple of years ago into an undersea cable, and uh, this is a data cable between the US and Australia, New Zealand, um, via Hawaii. Um, we could consider that an international asset. It was a, a you know, a fiber optic cable. This sort of, uh, this sort of uh, circumference that 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 joined the countries, but it was in international waters, obviously, and it was a US dollar denominated asset. We have looked around the globe for um, where we can apply our skills uh, most effectively, and uh, we. I've done this over a number of years. We went into the into the UK European market at about four or five years ago. Decided it was a very crowded market and very mature um, infrastructure markets. In fact, we've now pivoted our focus and actually have been looking for the last twelve months or so at the US market um, and are very keen on on that market. It's a lot less mature. Um, the deal flow in the US is absolutely enormous when you compare it to the number of managers that are actually um, playing the market. 
And so if we can take our skills, our mid-market infrastructure skills into that market, we think there are huge opportunities for the growth of expansion of Palisade um, and therefore the ability for, for the diversified fund to access those as well. Um, we have got a, a an ability to put up to 20% of our um, of the fund into offshore assets. So it's likely that we will um, will be in the US within six months, I'd suggest, and um, it's likely that Pitiful will see and get access to uh, opportunities there as well. We're Thanks, looking forward to it. We'll stick with you. Um, can retail investors invest in Pitiful? No. Okay, great. So that's you, Diane. <laughs> Ask the question. Thank you. Diane, next one from you is from Graham. He says, will agriculture investing become a greater focus uh, moving forward in your investment strategies? Uh, we do currently have quite a material allocation to real assets that includes agriculture and water rights. Um, while I do like agriculture as an asset class, it's, it's a very interesting, very diverse asset class with many different options in terms of the investment strategies. I do also see this asset class where the specific risks associated with agriculture are very difficult to manage and very difficult to predict. And we've all seen over the last few weeks what's been happening in some of the states and regions of Australia. These type of risks are extremely difficult to ensure from, extremely difficult to predict and to manage. So I would look at some other real assets strategies I won't necessarily expand and grow actively pure agriculture play. Now, pure agriculture play, I'm saying when we're buying and managing um, permanent crop orchards or annual crop orchards, um, but assets such as sustainable greenhousing, that could be a very interesting strategy for us. So. In the future, of course, open, we have a very flexible mandate that enables us um, to tap into themes and to tap into attractive opportunities. Um, unlikely, though, it will be traditional agriculture. Thanks, Dania. This next one is from Ian again. He says, Barwon is, a listed, is listed as a boutique real estate fund manager. Can you outline the types of real estate they own? Yes, so Barwon... Um, the, is the fund manager who manages for us, that, that's the strategy that we're committed to, manages institutional healthcare real estate funds. So um, there are various sectors within commercial real estate. Um, in Australia, you know, the dominant ones historically have been office sector and retail sector. Uh, over time, uh, those both sectors experience significant structural changes. Um, you know, retail, the shift uh, of the consumer habits moved to online retail um, and office actually was ex accelerated by COVID-19 and the changing lifestyle habits. So the two sectors that appear really interesting in Australia now, industrial and logistic, because of this very strong online trend and development, and healthcare real estate. Now, within WMA, we have those long-term megatrends, and aging population or increasing demand for healthcare services is one of the trends. Healthcare real estate plays this trend really well. Uh, what Barwin does, they go and buy established mature assets most of the time uh, that would have tenants um, like private public hospitals, diagnostic centers, GP clinics. The portfolio is well diversified across the sectors. The attractiveness of this sector versus others within real estate is that weighted average lease expiry profile is fairly long, usually 10 years plus. And leases tend to be either with fixed annual increases or CPI increases. Um, and, you know, this is a bit more technical term, but they also tend to be triple net leases, which means this type of assets, they usually have high maintenance costs 
Now, when the lease is structured as triple net, then the tenant covers those maintenance costs. In other words, very attractive income-producing strategy uh, with quite a significant capital appreciation potential. Thanks, Tania. This next one um, is from Graham, either for yourself or Jeff. Do shareholders pay fees twice in WMA? Um, I'm happy to answer this, and maybe if Jeff wants to... Yeah, ladies first. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Um, so the, the fee within WMA is structured the following way. We, um, as a portfolio manager uh, of a league, have management fee of 1%. We don't have performance fee. Uh, and then we look at the underlying fees across the portfolio. Um, as I mentioned, we renegotiated all of the underlying fees during the transition period. So the current level is very attractive on the equitable part of the portfolio. It, it would be within the range 1% to 1.1%. Now, looking at some of our peers who manage um, LICs or LITs within alternative space, either within private equity or private debt, this is a very um, reasonable, very attractive cost. What I would also say that WMA is not a pure fund of funds model because we have a combination of direct or co-investments. We have a combination of pooled funds we will be expanding into separate <clears throat> mandates. And I would only consider investments that have institutional type of fee structures. So I know that the alternative uh, investments uh, are offered uh, to some wholesale investors, and usually the fee structure um, is double compared to what institutional investors are paying. Now, because of our scale, um, because of our relationships with the investment partners, we do negotiate and we do get um, investment type of fee structures when we invest. I hope that helps. Thank you, Dania. Uh, one for you now, Jeff. This is from John. He's asked, what is the definition of fully frank dividend and grossed up frank dividend? Okay, um, a fully frank dividend is it? Um, maybe the best way is I'll give you an example. Say if a company earn, earns ten dollars of pre-tax earnings, then the corporate tax rate is thirty percent, so it'll pay you know, three dollars in tax. So then it'll have a, an after-tax profit of seven dollars. Now, if it if it can pay that out as a fully frank dividend, and that $7 will be fully frank because the maximum tax would have been paid on it. Um, and then if you have that, if, if you get that dividend and you have it in your um, in your super fund, you know, self-managed super fund, um, and then depending on where you are, if you're under the limit that you can have in there, then you'll get that, that $7 will be fully franked. So you'll get $3 back from the government um, which is tax that's already paid. And Paul Keating brought it in so there wasn't double taxation. So when we said, you know, look, when I was talking earlier about WMA giving you a yield of, you know, that 3.6-odd uh, percent, I think it was, um, then that is fully frank. That's like the $7 you're getting. And the gross-up amount, I said, was a little over 5%. That's effectively the money that if, you, if, you, if you're in a, have your money in a, a superannuation fund where you get the full refund, that's what it is. You know, so you'll get that money back. I hope that explains it. It, it, is, it is a tricky concept, but let's hope, let's hope I got close. Thanks, Jeff. And those are our questions today. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. Jeff, I might just pass back to you for any final words. Look, thank you very much, Camilla. Again, thank you all shareholders. You know we're only here because of you. Uh, it's, it's your company, so please, any questions, comments, suggestions, please feed them back to us. Um, I'd definitely like to thank Roger um, you know, for you know, being, you know, spending the time and, and being involved. And, and one of the exciting parts, I know when you said it, 
when the question was from one of the shareholders, can retail investors invest with you? Um, and uh, yeah, you probably, you, know, you said, unfortunately, no. Um, well, from our perspective, that's, that, that's, that's one of the great you know, benefits of um, WAM Alternative Assets, WMA. As Dania said, it's really democratising and letting you know, shareholders get exposure to people of your quality and calibre. Um, and so thank you very much. And Dania, again, on behalf of all shareholders and myself being a reasonable size one, um, look, thank you very much for all your hard work. Um, and we're looking forward for, to, for the share price to be trading at uh, NTA, if not a premium, very soon. Thank you.